On October the 7th, 2023, there was an attack on Israel. Many of us saw the footage as hundreds of Hamas fighters poured over the Israeli border. Over 1,500, oh sorry, 1,200 Israelis were recorded as killed. And we saw hostages being taken on the back of motorbikes and being thrown into trucks or stuffed into cars. None of us had ever seen anything like it on our TV screens. And many people inside Israel and outside were asking, where are you, God, in all this? It's not the first time that the horror of war has visited Israel. There was a time in history when Israel was under the boot of a very different group of people. A time when, if you disagreed with them, people came at you not with guns, but with sharpened blades. It was a time when the Roman Empire had crushed the Jews underfoot and reigned over them. The records, if you ever read of this time, they are brutal and they are cruel. And yet, it was a time when people like today were asking the question, where are you, God? Where are you? And they hadn't been asking that for just a few years. They'd been asking it for centuries. But it's often darkest before the dawn. And it was at this very dark time in history, one of the most beautiful and precious promises and prophecies that humanity has ever heard came down to us. We read about it in the Christmas narrative when a man named Joseph, engaged to a young girl named Mary, is visited by an angel in a dream. And you can, we can read about it in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. The angel said to Joseph, in this dark time, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you ought to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. This is an earth-shattering proclamation. The idea that the God of heaven would descend to the dirt of earth. And the idea that a virgin, Mary, would conceive and give birth to God, to God with skin on. And they will call him Emmanuel, a title that says, God with us. This child will be like no other child before or since, because this child will save his people from their sins. And this, to top it all off, had been foretold in a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, hundreds of years earlier, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. It had been written hundreds of years earlier, and it's a hope-filled prophecy. It's a shining light in a really, really dark room, in a place where you could almost taste the darkness. A little light sprung up. And yet, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, there are many who even today attack this prophecy. They don't believe it's true. They believe that this prophecy that many people hold dear 
is actually false. Or at least it's been greatly understood, misunderstood. If you meet some of these skeptics, some of them even call themselves Christians, they will say that this initial prophecy, the one written by Isaiah hundreds of years earlier, had actually already been fulfilled long before Jesus. Long before. It's already been done. And they also believe that the Hebrew word for virgin in, the, in Isaiah's prophecy actually just meant a virgin or it could mean just young woman. Nothing so special here, so to speak. Just young woman. So let's go back to that original prophecy that Isaiah said. And I want to show you some things. And spoiler alert, I actually agree with the skeptics on this one. I actually agree. But don't kick me out just, just yet. Um, there's more to this than meets the eye. So if you want to understand this original prophecy, you've got to understand, and you don't get taught this in Sunday school, at least I wasn't, this prophecy was written to an evil king. His name was King Ahaz. He was an evil, evil fellow. And he was terrified of two other evil kings who were coming to attack him. He was terrified. And God, in his goodness, was generous to Ahaz. You know how God has a habit of being generous to sinful people like you and I and Ahaz? Well, God's going to be generous to Ahaz. And God says to him, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. But keep reading. This child with this title will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Now, by the time a kid figures out what's right and wrong, at least in my experience, um, it's normally about two, three years before you can really tell, yeah, that kid knows what's going on. He needs to stop stuffing around, right? Um, it takes about one or two years, maybe three for some. So there's a prophecy here that a boy is going to be born, King Ahaz, take a deep breath. A boy is going to be born, and before he's old enough to know if what right and wrong is, the land of the two kings you dread is going to be laid waste. Now, in reality, surprise, surprise, that happened. That happened. You see, the king of one country, the northern kingdom of Israel, his name was Pekah. And Pekah was an evil man, but he didn't notice or hear the whispers in the dark around him. He didn't notice the narrowed gazes of the men in the corner. Or at least, if he did, it was too little, too late. Pekah was a victim of a conspiracy, and he was killed. And the land was thrown into uproar. And as for the other king, well, his, his name was Rezin. And Rezin, he was the king of Syria. And tragically, well, for Rezin, he was terrified of the Assyrians, the terrorists of the ancient world, a mighty empire who was unspeakably cruel. And they were marching, modern-day Iraq, marching down on Syria. Rezin was terrified of them. And in a very real sense, in a very tragic sense, all his nightmares came true. Little old Syria was attacked and Rezin lived long enough to see his armies decimated, his cities burned, his people, his men, women and children carried off in slaves and he eventually wound up in a town 
that was besieged, that fell to the armies. He was caught and executed. Lived just long enough to see all his nightmares come true. This prophecy was fulfilled. God in his goodness did generously protect King Ahaz. But we can often come along here and say, oh, well, Matthew can't say this has been fulfilled. It already has been. The skeptics are right. That's not necessarily how the Bible works. The Bible has a thing often called double fulfillment. We, with perhaps our Western mindset, or we've been watching a bit of the History Channel with ancient aliens, or we've been reading about Nostradamus, we think that prophecies can only have one fulfillment. That's not how real prophecies work. In the Bible, many, many times, Matthew has double fulfilled prophecies. Prophecies that occurred once, that are fulfilled, and then are fulfilled in a much greater way later. A good example is exactly this. You've got Emmanuel, God with us. So God says he's going to be with King Ahaz. He's going to be with him. He's going to be alongside him. And he's going to save him from two kings. But in Matthew, God says, God will be with you. God will come to earth. And God will not save a king from two other kings. God will save the world. God will save his people from his sins. Another beautiful example is, in a related idea, is the Lamb of God. We've all heard about the Lamb of God. Sacrificed in the Old Testament for the sins of one or two or three people. But Jesus, as the ultimate Lamb of God, sacrificed once for all. Do you get prophecies now? Do you see how Matthew works this? And when you see it, when you start reading more and more of the Christmas narratives and of the Bible, it blows your mind that God is in the business of double fulfillment, double the blessing. And we're seeing this in front of our eyes right here. So at the end of the day, um, also actually rewinding a bit, the whole young woman thing, if you might remember, I mentioned about the Hebrew word for virgin and young woman. I'm okay if the original gal in Isaiah 7 was a, a young woman who conceived and had a child. Why? Because the second time around, the word meaning is extremely clear. It's virgin. That's far more amazing. Far more amazing. So the skeptics are right about the initial fulfillment and they're right about the Hebrew words, but that doesn't justify their skepticism. Such skepticism is unjustifiable and they starve themselves of at least three soul-satisfying truths that are in the Matthew prophecy. Emmanuel, God with us, means that today in 2023, God is with us in our pain, He's going to be with us in our shame, and He's with us on His mission. Let's look at pain. God is with us in our pain. The fact that Jesus comes to earth is huge. There is no other religion on earth like this. Because you see, as one author has said, our God, unlike any other God you can name, our God comes to earth and he has scars. In fact, we can often forget that Jesus, as God the Son, had scars long before the cross. Maybe this is from one too many illustrated children's bubbles, but we often see Jesus as physically flawless before the cross. 
Now, has anyone, honestly, has anyone in our workplace health and safety risk assessment obsessed culture, for better or for worse, has anyone here reached the age of 30 without a single tiny scar? Without a single scar? Doesn't really happen, does it? Now, when you think even back in the day, it's even worse. There was none of that paperwork. There was none of that type of mindset. And Jesus, well, he was a carpenter. How many chippies do you know who have no scars? It's not a thing. There's no safety guards on Jesus' tools. There's nothing like that. He would have had scars, just like everyone else, because he's God with us. Furthermore than that, even if you do want to try to still say that maybe Jesus had no scars right up until the cross, Jesus certainly wouldn't have avoided the mental scarring that comes from living this life, the mental scarring that we have all experienced. You see, the only way you can avoid mental scarring is to avoid sinners. But God lived his life on earth surrounded by sinners. We know what it's like to be mentally scarred. Maybe it was the cruel world, words of your sinful parents. Cruel words of friends, of siblings, of strangers. We know what that is like. And Jesus had sinful parents. He had sinful teachers, friends, siblings, strangers. His life long before the cross involved some form of cruel words that hurt him because he's surrounded by sinners. He knows our experience of cruel words. He knows your experience. He knows what it's like to walk around with invisible scars. And this means, friends, this means that you can come to Jesus with your pain. You can, in a very real sense, come and sit with him and compare scars. Not in a sense of a one-upmanship sort of thing. But you see, he can show you his scars through Scripture. And you can show him yours. You can tell him about it. And as you share your visible and invisible scars, Jesus isn't going to pull back from you. He's going to move closer. Because that's who he is. The Bible says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That is you. If that is a part of you, he will hold you. He will hold you and he moves towards you, not away from you. For people who are physically putrid, Jesus moves forward and he touches. For people with mental scarring, he speaks to and includes. That's you. That's you. And it's me. That's who he is. He's that good. And for many of you today, I thank God that what I'm saying is not some abstract idea. I thank you that you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have the lived experience of His goodness and grace. You've heard what I'm saying many years ago. You've heard the truth of it and you went to Jesus and you've experienced His embrace. You've experienced His empathy and His closeness in a way that no one else on earth could ever give you. But for others of you, and I know this is true, you have a deep, deep sense of shame in this room, even today, and you hesitate to move towards him. 
And even if you feel that way today, I'm here to tell you, Jesus still won't walk away. He still doesn't turn away from you. Because God with us has ramifications for our shame. God, and God with skin on, Jesus, God the Son, knows what it is to be shamed by others. Do you remember the shame that was poured out on Jesus as he went to the cross? He knows public and private shaming in a way that you and I never have. On an intensity that you and I never have. People poured their scorn on him. Not one or two or ten. Hundreds in the crowds, very likely. And that's just what's recorded in Scripture. And as he's, pay, as he's on the cross and he's paying for the sins of humanity and he's making it possible for you and I to be reconciled to God, he just experienced more shame. There's no let up there. And in 2023, God chooses to be with, be with us in our shame. When we disgust ourselves, when we have labels attached to us, weirdo, addict, dumb. Insert the word that's in your mind right now that you remember. Those words you heard that were maybe muttered under their breath or shouted at you by a loved one weeks ago, months ago, decades ago. Our wounds, they hurt, they blind us, and they often get infected. Invisible, I hope you know, invisible wounds get infected just like visible ones. Your invisible wounds can be infected with shame. And when you have an infection of shame inside of you, it, it first of all, attacks your eyes. You struggle to see things clearly. See yourself clearly in the mirror. See others around you clearly. And then it begins to infect your brain and your very thought patterns become shame-laced. Shame runs through your neurons and your synapses just like any other chemical, like any other hormone that you can name. Shame infects. And if you're wondering, well, how do I know if I've been infected by shame? Because some of you have been walking with it for decades. If you're not sure, well, ask yourself questions like this. When God says to you, I want to be with you, do you go, amen, 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 and think it applies to everyone around you? But not actually you. If you've got a really bad infection, you might even cynically respond when someone says, God wants to be with you. You might cynically respond, oh, well, you have to say that. God has to say that. God doesn't have to say that. He can do what he wants. He's God. And he wants you to know that he wants to be with you. That's the sort of antibiotics, the sort of antiseptic you need to start applying to your myopic, blurred, jaundiced vision, to your melted neurons and toxic ways of thinking. You've got to remember, God is a God who can do what he wants. And he wants to be with you. And he proved it. And he's proving it even now. And he will prove it in the future. He doesn't stop. He just keeps walking towards. You need to hear these words. And some of you are so scared of this. You think, I want to believe this. And if someone was to say to you, well, are you a Christian? You'd say, of course. 
And if someone was to say to you, do you believe that you are undeservingly adopted into Jesus' royal family? You will go, amen and amen. But because of your fear, which is often comorbid with shame, you won't let that penetrate a millimeter of your self-perception. It's not getting in. It'll get to your mouth, to your lips, and that's about it. And the reason is because you're so comfortable with this shame-based identity. It's sick, but it's in all of us to a various extent. You've become comfortable with a shame-based identity that you've lived with for years. When you hear adopted royal brother or sister of Jesus, you freak out. You're just like, mm-hmm. Because your shame-based identity, whilst it's a gross place to live, it's your place. And you're comfortable and you're used to it. And stepping out of the prison you've been in for so long, I can't do it. I can't do it. These are the thoughts of a shame-infected soul. The very sort of soul that Jesus came to heal and to transform. And you know, Satan, the enemy of our souls, he loves it when you stay the way you are. He loves to see saints, adopted royal brothers and sisters of Jesus. He loves to see you walking around, stooped over, with hunched shoulders, looking at the ground. He loves to see that. And the reason why he loves to see it, and he takes a very special enjoyment in it, is because he knows it's only temporary. Because your shame-based identity isn't going to last. When you reach heaven, it's gone. You will see yourself as you truly are. So this shame-based identity, it's temporary. But why wait for heaven? Satan knows that the Holy Spirit's busy with you even now. So you might change your mind about who you are. You might actually allow this truth to transform your life in five years' time. Maybe in a few months' time. Maybe today. So Satan knows that the shame-based identity you carry is temporary and it could be gone like that at the end of the service even. could be going even now. So he wants to keep you trapped as long as possible because you are slipping through his fingers and God will guarantee that you will because God's that good. So you need to break out of this. You need to see the freedom that God has for you And you know what? The best part of this is it even gets better than this. God isn't just with us in our pain. He isn't just with us in our shame. He's also with us on His mission. You see, God's on a mission. He's not just coming down to the Michelles of the world, or the Jonos of the world, or the Duanes of the world, or the Grahams of the world. God's on a mission for the world. And he's calling all of us to move with him. He wants to restore you all, right? But that's not the end of the story. God wants to restore humanity. And how's he going to do this? Well, he's going to use you. He's going to transform you where you sit with all your imperfections, with all your issues, with all the bits of you that you don't like. And God says, I'm going to use you to transform others. 
because he doesn't use perfect people. He uses us. And he's been doing it for thousands of years. And here we are in Australia, thousands of years after Jesus walked on earth, in a continent that no one in Jesus' day knew existed. And God's doing his thing. He's taking his people on mission to transform the world. And the best part is, when God came to earth, he didn't come down to turn the world upside down. He came to turn it right side up. And he's doing it with us today. And he wants to do it with you today. If you are not in heaven right now, there is a reason. Because God has things for you to do. And the amazing part right now is that wherever you go in the world, there are people who are extinguishing the incense from their shrines of their ancestral worship for the last time. Jesus had revealed himself to them in 2023 and they're changing. There are women right now, Muslim women, who are adjusting their veils for the last time. Men, Muslim men, who are answering the call to prayer for the last time. Because God the Father has shown them that Jesus is the true Messiah, the true prophet, the Son of the living God. That's happening this morning. That's happening today across our world. In the city, there are atheists who are cancelling their website subscriptions and they're Googling the nearest church in the West. In the country, there are station hands sitting under trees by themselves somewhere, reading the little Gideon's Bible that they got in school. Their gaze is locked into what they're reading. And by the time they finish, when they stand up, they're going to stand up as new creations, as new people. How is this possible? God is on mission. And he sends normal people like us to Muslims, to atheists, to agnostics, to you name it, he's sending people to them. Because how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless someone's been sent? You and I are the ones God has sent. And you and I have a part to play in this massive renovation work of earth. Let me make it real personal and real practical. If you are a tradie here today, and I know there's a few of you, well, God wants missionaries to the tradie tribe. If you are a teacher, God wants missionaries to the teaching tribe. If you are part of the uni, you know where this is going. God wants missionaries to the uni tribe. If you work at a fast food joint, and I know there are some here today who do as well, all power to you because God has missionaries for the fast food tribe. He doesn't just send us to share the news either. This is the beautiful part. It's not just, you're not just there to share the news of God in your respective vocations. God wants to use you to bless the world in a very practical, nuts and bolts sense with your labor. If you are a Christian bread truck driver, I don't think there's too many of us in this group, but let's just say there is. If you are a Christian bread truck driver, God is going to use you to fulfill the prayer Give us this day our daily bread. It's very practical. It's very down to earth. He's going to use you for that. If you are, in fact, whatever industry you think of, people pay you for the blessing that you give to them. If you are working here today, 
If you're going to work on Monday or any time in the next couple of days, God is using you to bless that industry. It may not be super or obviously spiritual, but God cares about people's spiritual and physical and emotional needs. And God's using you with whatever gifts and talents He's given you to make a difference in that space, to bless people. I get very tired of people saying, oh, well, I can either become a pastor or a minister or some sort of you know, a big Christian ministry worker, and that makes my work meaningful. And if I'm not in that space, my work's not meaningful. That's not how God works. He's either going to use you to bless people spiritually, physically, or emotionally. Every single occupation and trade fits under those three categories. And God's going to use you in that space. He's made you the way He has for a purpose. Lastly, if you're a full-time parent at home, God's using your labor to intensely form the souls of those who dearly loves, the little people who He dearly loves and He's entrusted to you. He's given them to you. So full-time parent, you're there for a reason as well. And because of all this, everyone here in this room can walk into their workplace or their domestic duties differently tomorrow. You can go in there with a spring in your step because God is using you to bless others. And if you're under 18 in this room, if you're still at school, you can make a lifelong impact on your classmates. You ask any adult ever and they will tell you they still remember some of their classmates from when they were kids. Teenagers, primary school, no matter where you are, you can be an impact in those around you's life while you get ready to make an even additional impact as an adult. Make an impact now, make an impact later. It's no accident you're at the school you're at. No accident at all. So, at the end of the day, the mission of God is incredible. It advances one workplace, one conversation, one school, one millimeter at a time. God is with us in our pain. He's with us in our shame. He's with us on His mission. And the promise right at the end of the book of Matthew, you might remember it. Jesus' last words to His people. And I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Emmanuel, God with us. Let's live out these amazing treasure and then live out these amazing truths this week. I'm going to pray and then we'll go to our next songs. Jesus, I thank you that you are so good. I thank you that you descended from heaven to the dust of earth, to the grime of human existence. I thank you that you're with me and indeed all of us in our pain and in our shame and you've taken us on mission. And I thank you that's only the tip of the iceberg. You with us means far, far more than those three things. But it's not only less. So thank you, Jesus. And I pray and I ask now that your Holy Spirit will just burn into our hearts and minds what you need to burn into our hearts and minds. If there's an infection of shame, free us, I pray. If there is a comfortableness in the prisons of shame, free us, I pray. And if we feel like our life is meaningless, if our work is meaningless, or if we feel like no one understands our pain, sit with us, Jesus, and show us who you really are. I thank you that you are so good, and we trust you in faith for the even greater things that you're going to show us as you're with us tomorrow 
and in the days, weeks, months, years ahead, all the way till we see you face to face. In your name, amen.